Hey, I'm Pastor Dave Ferguson. Welcome to Crosswalk Chattanooga's Weekend Teaching Podcast. We're glad you're with us. Good morning. How are you doing? You doing all right? We had a great weekend last weekend, our fifth year anniversary. A lot of you were here for that. It was just a joy to spend time together at our celebration last week. This week, we reemerge in our uncomfortable series, and today, uncomfortable worship. I'm glad you're here to worship together, uncomfortable worship. Maybe it bears pointing out that today we're going to be talking about worship not so much as a noun, something we go to, something we have an opinion of, something that um, we observe, they worship, they worship, and it is a worship that we come to, but rather the verb, the verb, the action of worship we're going to talk about. I got to admit to you, as I think about this phrase, uncomfortable worship, more and more I've started to wonder if in fact there is... In fact, there is no such thing as worship that is not uncomfortable. Uh, Can I admit something to you? Uh, I, as I watch my friend Chris right here worship, I am envious. I'm envious, Chris. Chris will be, be here. He might be here. There might be some of this. And I... I can't seem to get my hands very far from here. I I don't know what your situation is. I was looking at some of you. I think you have a similar situation. Uh, Mine, actually, I can can do a little kind of a a knee wobble. I can can shift back and forth. You know, every once in a while, I can do a little kind of a boop, you know, kind of a thing. But I, I just, I can't seem to... In fact, as a young youth director, I took up guitar just to avoid hand motions to camp songs. (laughs) Didn't even need to necessarily be making noise, just Father Abraham. Okay, you guys go for it. (laughs) You know what's weird, though? In almost every single picture of me preaching, I'm like this. (laughs) What is that about? I can't... To, to songs, I can't, I can't do that, but if I get passionate and I get talking about something I care about, next thing you know, I'm all out here. I don't know. There's something maybe inherently uncomfortable about worship, which is kind of interesting in that very often we talk about worship as the noun based on what we are comfortable in. I like to go there for that worship I don't like that worship. And here we are today considering the discomfort of worship. In fact, we use words like sacrifice, right? The whole system of worship in the Old Testament was built around the idea of sacrifice. God's sacrifice for us, our sacrifice for him. What if sacrifice and worship were synonymous? That would be very uncomfortable, unless we've kind of cleansed it and, you know, sanitized it and made it really something toned down, maybe bumper sticker crosses and other instruments of torture. Yeah, uncomfortable. I'd like to take you to a story that I think is centrally about worship. Centrally about worship, it's in all four Gospels, or at least I would suggest it is. We'll talk about that a little bit more 
in a minute. But I'm going to take you to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 14, verse 3. Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. In Matthew, actually, it actually says, they were in the home of the guy who is known as Simon the leper. Kind of interesting that you would, because leprosy, let's just be honest, leprosy was this horrific disease that no one could ever get over. It was the end for you. You were kicked out of society. You were sent away. Maybe if you had a super loving family or friends, they would bring food and drop it off in a spot for you, but they couldn't be there when you were. And over time, your lack of feeling as it transitioned through your body, your face would begin to disintegrate. Your ears might be gone. Fingers gone. I mean, it was terrible. It was considered a living death. And here... So it's the guy known as Simon living death. <laughs> Can you imagine if we did that very often? We just took some horrific situation and we just attached it to your name. Yeah, this is Halitosis Mark. I just, you know him? Uh, Spitzwally talk, Martha. Or worse. This is, this is Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy, and you know the story well enough to know why we can use that word previously. It's because Jesus walks into the story at some point. Let's just be honest about it. It's different when Jesus walks into your story. It's a change when Jesus walks into your story. The Gospels will say that when Jesus would walk into a town, people would start bringing the sick and they would bring those who had any infirmity, any difficulty, demon possession. They would bring every one of those individuals. And he would walk through a town and by the time he walks out the other end, every single person has been healed. Ah, well, it's this house. There's a dinner that's being thrown for Jesus while he was eating Simon and Jesus and the guests, while they were all eating, a woman comes in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. The essence of nard. Yeah, it, come on. Somewhere down deep. That makes you want to giggle. The essence of nard. You know, if I, if I were to say to you, you know, my wife... Say whatever you else you want to, but she 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 has the essence of nard. <laughs> okay, that's hmm. the essence of what's the essence of nard? Well, the, well, this is spike nard. It's a, it comes from a specific plant found in the Himalayan mountains, so it's not going to be easy to come by. And you squeeze the oils out of this kind of. Uh, they say honeysuckle-like plant that grows in the Himalayas into this drops of oil. And one of the Gospels is going to say she's got about seven or 12 ounces of this oil. Really expensive, expensive stuff we'll come to find out. And even the alabaster jar. Alabaster is a form of marble. And they would make these little marble containers that had a long, thin neck on it. And it would be sealed up. And so you would snap what she's done here. She's come in with this expensive perfume in this ornate marble jar. And she snaps the neck off of it and plucks out the wax that would seal it off. And has poured this onto Jesus. She washes his head, his feet. If you compare the gospel stories about this, and that's, 
That's what I'd like your permission actually to do. In this moment of what is kind of uncomfortable worship, if you don't mind, what I'd like to do is compare the four Gospels a little bit, and that's going to be a challenging. So here's the thing. Almost no stories in the New Testament Gospels are found in all four of them. There are only a couple of them. This is one of them, or at least we believe so. This is one of them. Actually, Matthew and Mark, they tell this story somewhat similarly. John also fairly similarly to them, although he adds details. John likes to include names. He's going to let you know who. But beyond that, then, there's Luke. In Luke chapter 7, it appears that the story is told at a different timing, and there are some other details, enough so that scholars wonder, is Luke 7 actually the same story, or did Jesus do this more than once? And it's possible that he did it more than once. I would like to suggest, at least it's my opinion, that this is actually what happens if you were to interview more than one person about something that happened in a room. Have you noticed if you interview more than one you've watched some crime drama, right, where there are more than one witness, and they talk to one witness, and they give them the story, and so they think they've fleshed out who maybe, how this went down, and then they talk to another witness, and there are more details, and also there tend to be some conflicts, Right? Something is a little different, and maybe it's because of where they were standing in the room or when they passed through or whatever. You know, every once in a while, somebody will say, the fact that the four Gospels have any kind of discrepancy or details that are a little different, that suggests to me that God is not responsible for the New Testament. I want to say, if what God did with the New Testament is he spoke through, he gave his word through human beings, actually, I'd be suspicious if it all absolutely lined up. Those wouldn't be humans I know of to have no kind of different angle or uniqueness to their voice or what it is that they were paying attention to or how they even chose to tell the story. That actually suggests to me, okay, maybe, maybe this, yeah, God seems to be using people to tell his story. So if you don't mind... I'm going to do a mashup of these four Gospels. That means that it's going to be hard to continually read from the screen from Scripture because I'm going to be bouncing in and out and back and forth. So instead, I'm going to tell you the story. But if you're a person who likes to take notes or maybe you snap off a picture of the screen, go take a look at it later, you'll notice these stories lining up with each other. All right, so here we go. First of all, it starts with a dinner. You know, Leper Simon, right? He's, it's at his house in Bethany. In fact, in John, John says Lazarus is at this meal too. Lazarus, Mary, Martha, they all live in Bethany. Some scholars wonder and suggest that Simon may well have been a relative, an uncle maybe, of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. So there's this meal that he, Jesus, is invited to and everyone comes to. I don't know how big this meal is, this banquet is, but Here's what seems to be going on. They are honoring Jesus. And by the way, the three gospels who tell it very similarly will point out this is during the week before the passion, the week before the crucifixion, the week before Passover. So if this is potentially on a Saturday, one week, have you ever, do do you do this at all? Boy, this time next week, you know what I'll be doing? You ever do that? You ever do the one where it's, ah, you know, this time last week, when you had just a really great event that, ah, this time last week, I was fill in the blank, doing something awesome or great. For Jesus, this time next week, I will be in a tomb. 
this time next week. They don't know it. And Jesus has tried to tell them. But here they are now, celebrating Jesus. And maybe, maybe Simon stands up and he says, well, of course, all of you know, because you refer to me as Simon the leper. <laughs> so maybe you know that was my past. Of course you would, until Jesus came into my life. And he tells a little bit of his story, and he's talking about how he was rescued by the power of Jesus Christ. And about that time, because he's probably sitting there on the right of Jesus, and you hear this kind of throat-clearing moment. <clears throat> you look over, it's Lazarus. I was dead. Right? It's kind of like the showstopper, right? Who's, who's going to get over that one? So there they are celebrating the power of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, a woman slides into the room. Now, John will say that Martha is actually serving at this meal and that it is Mary who comes in and pours out the perfume. John's the only one who clarifies who this is. Was Mary already in the room and she just kind of gets up? Now, by the way, probably in that room, women were not seated in the places of honor with men, they would have been probably toward the back. And so now she's kind of invading this space and coming into this place. It's got to feel pretty awkward and uncomfortable as she tries to slip in and slip out. But she has miscalculated this moment because what she's about to do is she's going to break open this bottle of perfume. She's going to snap the neck off of this, this marble jar and pour 12 ounces, a couple of the storytelling say on his head and others on his feet there's enough for both and maybe it depended on when you glanced over or maybe maybe you didn't notice what was happening this is pure <laughs> nard it is strong it is commanding the room it is one of those things, if you're just eating and now this has been poured onto Jesus and a woman is at his feet and wiping his feet with her hair and you're just trying to, you would know. This is a kind of perfume that often they would take individual drops and drop it into some other oil so that they could stretch it. It had power in this. It was also very, very expensive. That's going to come up in a moment. In fact, it was... It was so expensive, they're going to say it, it's, it's the equivalent of a year's worth of wages. And I realize that that's a hard number to wrap our minds around because I don't know what your wages are, what my wages are, and maybe, maybe by the time we work in our retirement fund portion of our wages and our insurance piece, and somebody else here is saying, well, my wages are very small. Others are going to be shocked by something as low as $100,000 or whatever. But let's say it were $100,000 worth of perfume. And she has dumped it all <laughs> on Jesus. And that's point one about worship. Worship is all. It's all of it. Or it's not worship. It's pouring it all out, or it's not worship. And this maybe is part of our issue with turning the verb of worship into a noun of worship, is that we tend to hold something back rather than pour it all, rather than dump it all. There's no, there, she can't put this back. It can't be saved. She breaks it open, and it gushes out, and 12 ounces are now filling the room. 
And if she thought she could get in and out of this moment, if she thought this was kind of a little, a little hand gesture at the waist, it is not. Everyone knows. And this is going to stick with Jesus for a little bit. One wonders as Jesus goes to the cross if you could still smell this perfume. As she pours over him. Here's what's interesting. So, so often, real worship is met with criticism. So often. And before you or I start to think, yeah, I know, those people. <laughs> How do they do that? Look, we, we've, we can turn criticism into an incredible art form, can't we? We can criticize nearly anything. How many of you enjoy the game of going to some crowded place and just people watching? Well, I mean, let's, let's be honest about what we're doing. Oh, seriously, look at that. <laughs> but we can criticize worship and by the way, when you feel like your worship is criticized, you know what that does? It almost never causes me to go, yeah, that's, I should be more mellow about all of that. No, it tends to give me some weird justification that I'm going to criticize yours right back. Well, here they are. Room filled with this perfume. You remember the story, by the way, of David? Not King David. King David in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, this focal point of the presence of God, it, it's been kind of traipsing around the countryside and he wants to bring it back and make it at home in Jerusalem, that God's presence there. And so the Ark of the Covenant finally is being paraded through the streets to a place that's been prepared, a special place. Of course, the temple will end up being built there by his son Solomon. But David is just overcome with an emotional response to this situation, or at least some sort of kind of, well, he's dancing in the streets, and he will actually strip himself down from his kingly garments. I don't think he's like, you know, naked or anything, but he is now, you cannot identify him as king by his clothes anymore. And he is dancing in the streets on the way in, and it's not one of these kind of like, you know, knee wobble situations. He's all in. It's the perfume is being poured all the way out. And his wife, Michael, is looking out. She's not even participating in the moment, but she's looking out and she's watching as David makes his way through the streets and she is appalled by this. This is undignified. This is not kingly. You are, you are associating too commonly. And the Bible says that she despised his worship. The Bible will also say, somehow, connecting these two things, that she doesn't end up having children. You know, if you, if you want to do a little digging, the Bible seems to suggest we should all take a step back from criticizing somebody else's worship. We can criticize huh, smoke and mirrors. You know, they have a hazer. Or guitar. Or pipe organ and praise songs, and hymns, and orchestra, and praise band, and we're just talking music. Didn't say anything about the way you dress, or what the seats are, or... And here they are criticizing. 
Their criticism in this moment, in the three of these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, have to do with how expensive this is. This is a waste. This is an absolute, tremendous waste of money. And so they say it. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor, so they scolded her harshly. Now John goes on to say, yeah, this whole thing was led by Judas, who, by the way, we find out later was regularly dipping in he is actually a little frustrated that there's not more money for him to rob from God and the very next story in John will be of him going to the priests and selling Jesus out and that makes you wonder is there actually a connection between criticism of people's worship and selling Jesus out maybe it's a short walk from the one to the other. You know what Jesus' response is to this? Jesus' response is simply to say, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? He'll go on to talk about the fact you guys haven't been getting it. Uh, This time next week, I'm going to be in a tomb. She knows or at least she senses that this is the moment. And that may be an appropriate thing for us to focus on for just a second. There is no other time than now for your worship, for my worship. It is an all-in thing and it is a now thing. We live our lives so often feeling like, thinking like, acting like we've got tomorrow. It'll be fine. Ah, If you're a college student, you might be ultra prone to think you've got plenty, plenty, plenty of time, but you have friends that wasn't true of. It's not just grayer-haired people who come to grips with the fact that we are not guaranteed more than this moment now that we are in. If you're going to worship, it's an all-in thing, and it's a now thing. It's now. Well, I'd like to take you, if you don't mind, because I've left one of the Gospels kind of dangling on its own, and that's Luke chapter 7, in in part because it goes into some things that are a little bit unique, a little bit different than these three other Gospels at Simon's house. And in Luke, it isn't mentioned that this is Simon's house. In fact, in Luke, it says it's a house of a Pharisee. And again, if this is the same story told a little different way in a different angle, then maybe it is that Simon is indeed a Pharisee. And in fact, is a Pharisee and a woman who comes to Jesus bathes his feet in her tears and her kisses and her hair. And this all means something because in that culture, to touch somebody else's feet, do you remember in the upper room, no one will wash one another's feet. And then Jesus gets up to wash feet, and it's like, this is crazy. Don't you do that. That's ridiculous. We don't touch one another. That's for servants. That's for the lowly. And here is this woman. In fact, Luke 7 will describe her this way. It was a woman who is known for her immorality. An immoral woman. And that could mean a variety of things. But most commonly, most likely, It meant that this was a woman who, for whatever reason, had gotten to the place where the way she made her way through life was by selling her body. 
And maybe then it makes sense that she's got this incredibly expensive perfume that she has to snap the neck off of and pour it all out onto Jesus. But think about what that would mean. What that would mean is, in fact, she is taking what she has saved up, $100,000 worth, and she is pouring it all out on Jesus. Think about this. If indeed that's how she got this kind of money, indeed how she got this perfume, in essence, she's taking her past and she's pouring it out on Jesus. And I want to suggest to you, and this is part of why I don't believe there's such a thing as worship unless it is uncomfortable, is that worship, in part, is us pouring out our past onto Jesus. And he, when somebody steps up to criticize because it looks awkward, because it smells too rich, because she shouldn't be touching his feet, because this meal was for men, Jesus will say, Leave her alone. Leave him alone. Leave them alone. This is exactly what they need in their life is to pour out all of their past, not tomorrow, right now, onto me. I can take it. I will take it all away through this next week, through the Mondays, the Tuesdays, the Wednesdays, on into a Thursday night meal, Passover turned communion, and I will wear your past on the cross. Worship is an opportunity to give away our past and accept a future that Jesus purchased for you. Think about this. As she breaks this bottle, see, the story is going to be told this is an immoral woman. This isn't, doesn't come out of thin air or out of nowhere. In fact, what's about to happen is Simon is going to be looking over and wondering how it is that Jesus will let this immoral woman, this woman who sells herself, this woman who, who this is how she gets this perfume and she pours her prostitute scent all over him. If he were anyone who was anyone, he would know what's going on. And one must ask the question, how is it that Simon knows she's an immoral woman? Do you suppose that as they attempt to eat their meal, some in that room go... I recognize that smell. Jesus, <clears throat> the one who heals the leper and rescues him from a living death. The one who calls out Lazarus and brings him back to life welcomes the perfume of Mary's past because he wants to give her life too. Don't miss it. Whatever you've been carrying around this week, Jesus says, I can take it. Pour it over me. And I give you life. 
even if this thing that was yours brings about my death. Criticism, of course, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, smelled this, figured out what was happening, and looked at her and maybe refused his eye contact because of not wanting to be found out for his own stuff, Simon says, well, you know what, if this man, this is in his, his mind, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. And then Jesus answered his thoughts. <laughs> I love that. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Look, I, I'm going to keep talking up here. But for some of us right now, Jesus is sitting with you, ready to answer your thoughts. He answers, <laughs> he answers the thoughts. And, and as he answers, he does something very interesting and unique. He tells a parable in which he suggests that worship and forgiveness are tightly linked. And that as we come to worship here, as we worship in our car, as we worship on our knees, whether at home or somewhere else, that actually the fullness of our worship will be in some ratio to the fullness of forgiveness. He tells this story. He answers his thoughts. Simon, the previously leopard dude. I got a question for you, Jesus asks. Can you help me out with this? Here, here's the situation. So you got two people who have actually borrowed money from the same, same guy, same lender. One has a debt of a 500, you know, whatever it is. We'll say $500 million. This one has a debt of $50. Which one, when that, that lender forgives both debts, which one will be more grateful? Well, the one who was forgiven more. Yes, exactly. And in fact, which one will have some bigger thing to share back of praise or worship or thanksgiving. The one who's forgiven more. And, and by the way, he would say, by the way, you should know this woman's sins are forgiven. And then he says something uncomfortable, and they are many. It's as if he is saying, and can't you tell it, Simon? You threw a dinner that was easy and you sat next to me taking a place, your spot beside God. And she wipes my feet and pours out her past. Of course, your worship, her worship, my worship, is completely and directly associated with our reception of forgiveness. I just want to say it. Worship, <clears throat> worship is not something that overwhelms you. You may have felt overwhelmed at some point, and I do with some regularity. Everyone, most, every, most every worship service, there's some point where I get caught a little bit, somewhere, somewhere in here, I don't know if, I don't know if human beings have gizzards. I don't know what this part is exactly. 
I'm sure I'm going to be taught that in the moments to come. But, and I get caught somewhere in here. It's often it's when I'm kind of over by the wall in the last praise song before I stand up. And I'm, I habit, it's my habit to just kind of crouch a little bit and pray. And I don't know why, but while I'm praying and while this room is filled with song and something gets me almost every single time and it catches in the gizzard, and often triggers something else out of the corners of my eyes. But here's the thing. Worship isn't just this feeling of being overwhelmed. This woman, in the moment, as she's there somehow in the corner, in the shadows, at the meal, she's not overwhelmed by Jesus' presence, and so she pours this perfume. No, no, no. This woman did this with premeditation and arrangement, right? Worship is a calculated, deliberate response to something that overwhelms you, yes, but it is a deliberate, planned reaction. It is it fully, you are, you, are, you are fully engaged in this, not just heart, but head as well. It's not an overcoming of an emotional thing, though emotions are always somehow connected to the things we decide to do. It is instead calculated, deliberate, a response to the grace of God. And it is, unco- if, if in fact worship is connected to forgiveness, it is always uncomfortable. That woman knows, and she is outing herself into the open air. And she's not going to be able to hide. Let's be honest. You can't hide. I can't fully hide. I'm quite private. And I don't raise my hands much. I've occasionally responded in ways that could be seen. But you know and I know, we're a mess. And we are quite honestly, hopeless, unless we come to the feet of Jesus and pour out our past and accept his grace in a deliberate, uncomfortable response of worship. I'm going to say, I believe worship is the most extravagant thing a human being can do. And you're invited all the way in, not some other time, now. You are invited, not part way, all the way. Give away all of it. Break it open, snap the neck, and pour it out on the feet of Jesus, who is going to the cross again and again and again for you and for me. Lay claim to the forgiveness he has for you in worship, however uncomfortable it is. That same King David, who danced in the streets a little later on, is found in 2 Samuel, chapter 24, and in 1 Chronicles, chapter 21. He has gotten a little full of himself. Isn't that interesting? He started out as this humble dude who was too small. He's the little guy who won a battle with a giant. 
But it isn't but 15 minutes, it seems, when God gives us some success in our lives and we are suddenly full of ourselves. David too. It's a weird story that you read because it doesn't seem like much has happened. He actually commands his general to take a census of the population. You'll start to notice there must be something wrong with this because the general is going, why, wait, why, what, why, no. It's because that wasn't supposed to be done unless God commanded it because the notion was God is still the king. David, you are this little king under the king. And it is the king whose people these are. And David starts to act like, no, 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 these are my people. And maybe it's so that he can tax them or maybe it's so that he can conscript them into the military or for whatever reason, maybe it's just to be able to say, hey, you know how many people came to our place last time? We had X number of people in attendance. For whatever reason, he wants to take this census and bad things happen and punishment is doled out and he is corrected and he is gutted and remorseful and and comes before God and God says what I want you to do is I want you to go to the threshing floor of Aruna. Aruna is a dude and you're going to go there and you're going to get permission and you're going to purchase this territory and you're going to set up an altar and you are going to sacrifice in repentance. So he shows up at Yeruna's place and Yeruna's going oh great oh my God King David sure hey let me give you the field. You can have the field. And in fact, we've got oxen. We've got livestock. We've got everything you need. Let me just give it to you. And David has this incredible and moving response. He says this, I will not present burnt offerings that have cost me nothing. And if we've turned worship into a noun where we go where it's comfortable and the music we like and the places, I mean, these are nicely padded chairs. Get a little pick-me-up of coffee. Because it's the thing I like. And David, if he were to walk in this room, he'd go, whoa, 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 whoa. You want to worship, it's got to cost you something. It's uncomfortable. And a little, little lady whose life changed because of the redemptive power of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ would step up, maybe still smelling of nard. And she would say, you should just, that thing you're carrying, you should snap the neck off of it and pour it all onto Jesus. Sacrifice everything. Some of us, see worship as simply what happens with a guitar and when we're singing and we're standing and maybe you find it easy to do some of this. You might be a little bit more like me. Mm. Maybe for you, it, maybe for me, it is to, to think about the fullness of what worship actually even is, that worship for me may have something to do with things that are not even in this room. Maybe it is about the way that I serve other people in fullness, giving my life away. Maybe it is that there are people who don't know who Jesus is who are just struggling for a meal, who need my help. What if it is the person who came in here alone today, barely able to get here, who doesn't feel loved? And in a moment, I have a choice between talking to the people I know and love well. And I think that's what loving well means.
And God is saying, no, 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 turn, turn, turn. Love. Could be that there's something you have decided to treasure over God himself. Maybe when a little QR code comes up and a give well conversation takes place, it is that moment of saying, you know what? I don't have much, but what I have, I will give. I'm not going to come to worship that doesn't cost me anything. That's not worship at all. So I'm gonna ask Jesus now, what do you, what, how can I give to you? I don't really think he needs your money. But I do think he wants your sacrifice and your worship, wholehearted and full and uncomfortable. Thank you for joining us for this teaching. Consider hitting the subscribe button to stay tuned for next week. If you'd like to support Crosswalk Chattanooga, go to crosswalkvillage.com slash Chattanooga and click the give button at the far right of the ribbon at the top. Notice the campus drop-down menu and select Chattanooga. And if you'd like to come and worship with us on a Saturday morning, we would love that. When you do, please say hi to me. I'd love to learn your name.